continuing our segment on education, got Garrett Smiley's co-founder of Sora Schools. I will let him share more about what Sora Schools is. We're going to dive in, talk more about how Sora got started, about you know different different views on education, how it's changing. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Garrett. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So in your own words, what is Sora? Let's just start there. So without getting into the weeds too much, Sora is a no compromises approach to creating the school of the future. So we started with high school and we're currently, it's our mission to be the best and biggest high school in the world. That's awesome. That's awesome. We'll dive into the nuts and bolts in just a little bit, but I, I want to talk more about kind of the founding story. How, how did Sora come to be? And, and maybe more importantly, why? Great question. So I'll start probably a little earlier than you're asking. That's all right. <laughs> so growing up, I was a military brat, so I moved around a whole lot of times. I've lost track at this point, but it was six or seven times, usually with a different school every single time that we, we moved. So when I was growing up, my parents always prioritized education, and I'm really thankful mm-hmm. they did. It's a wonderful thing for parents to care about. But things became particularly annoying or value misaligned perhaps in my early high school years because I started my first nonprofit with my sister and I joke with people that it was basically us trading our cuteness for donation dollars. We were, <laughs> we were holding fundraisers and uh, it's not probably allowed nowadays, but I had a little sign. I was like 13 years old. I'm like um, $5. I was really small. So I'm like $5 for a kiss on the cheek. And we, we raised stuff like that. It was really weird. <laughs> so um, what that, turned into is actually pretty substantial. We raised tens and tens of thousands of dollars to build water infrastructure and sanitation infrastructure in developing nations. So I was traveling the world. We were talking, or we were places like Central America, like Africa, like India, building this infrastructure, tangibly helping adults, you know, like real people, thousands of people's lives. But when I would come back, my school at the time, this quote unquote elite prep school or whatever, which said that I should stop doing that because I was concerned I was missing too much class. So that was kind of the moment which your face seems (laughs) to understand. (laughs) I can imagine how that, that was a little bit upsetting, but. Exactly. Exactly. And that was even to my young mind, I was only 13 years old or something. I just realized how ridiculous that that was because I was having these formative experiences Mm -hmm. going into not only experiencing different cultures, but then you're telling me that learning about these cultures and a boring history lecture is more important. That was ridiculous to me. Yeah. So that kind of, un- say it politely, that annoyed me. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it rose the natural question where I'd been experiencing all these different types of schools. And now, now being a little peeved at the system, the question arose, what is the best way to learn? So I've experienced all these different ways. So what is the best way? And that sent me down reading about, I've always been a bookworm. So I started reading about learning science. I started reading about um, human development, stuff like that. And um, that just kind of sparked a a big interest in my young life. I can fast forward to college years if if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yes. Let's, let's keep it going. What happened next? (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So I keep playing the game of school. Well, I get all grades I'm supposed to, but it did feel like that. It just felt like a game jumping through the hoops I was supposed to. Kind of, kind of felt like BS at times, but my parents valued it. They've been sacrificing a lot for me to do this. I kind of felt like I owed it to them. Plus, mm-hmm. wasn't very hard. <laughs> like I would do yeah. homework, the class before I was that classic 
procrastinating student, which was most of me and my quote unquote high achieving friends in AP classes or whatever. Yeah. So I just played the game of school. Well, did well in the tests I was supposed to, I decided to go to Georgia tech. So I wanted to be a mechanical engineer at the time and they were a top program. So I'm like, whatever, I'll travel the country, move to Georgia. There I end up being a part of this program called grand challenges at Georgia tech. And which is a really, really great and novel approach to education in the industry, AKA college that usually doesn't make anything novel yeah. or great. <laughs> yeah. So basically what they did is they accepted a hundred freshmen of the incoming class and they made us live together. And we had special topics lectures. We were, we were supposed to attack a wicked problem that we've identified. And we had basically two years to do this, our first two years of college, in addition to our other schoolwork. So through that process, we identified, me and this small team that, that we assembled, um, the foster population, the foster kids around the Atlanta area were going homeless at a rate of 50% in some areas, which is like really bad as I'm sure you're aware. It's terrible. Exactly. Awful. So when we identified why this is happening, we did our customer discovery. We realized that these students through no fault of their own didn't understand basic things like what a bank was, what mm-hmm. a budget was. <laughs> they didn't have this really basic knowledge that's required to function in society and this knowledge you would expect you know the social contract we expect from schools public schools to fulfill they simply weren't so i i mentioned sometimes it felt like i was living in the famous becker essay called schools a lousy place to learn in i don't know if you're familiar it's one of my favorites he, <laughs> uh, go ahead yeah <laughs> he basically says basically the hypothesis of of his paper is that all the achievement gap we see between low-income and high-income students is mostly a consequence of the extracurricular activities they're doing outside of school with the resources that they have. It's not the system itself. It's in spite of the system, just yeah. to generalize it. So yep. it felt like I was living through that essay where these students were having horrible life outcomes because they were relying entirely on the system and it was failing them. So that was kind of the moment in my life where I realized you're not going to fix the system. What's, yep. what's going to fix and improve society is not going to be creating another after-school program for rich kids. It's not going to be selling into public schools. It's not any of that. It's a system that needs to change, yeah. which was a radical and kind of sobering thought. Um, didn't really know how I would attack that at that point, but uh, that's, that's kind of how, how a story began, which I can dive into if you don't have any questions. Yeah. I mean, it's funny even looking back at like kind of my own experience and like what I, what I enjoyed doing most as a, as a career and like what we're doing at Praxis is like the seeds of, of like the seeds of that fire seem to seem to sometimes be planted in the frustrations you felt with the system or the world the, when you encountered it. I, I, you know, go looking back on my own education in college, like a lot of those, a lot of those frustrations of the hoop jumping and, and like thinking about all the things I was doing outside of class that were probably more valuable, but for some reason in, in context of the school, those were viewed as distractions from my studies. Even if I, you know, you do well in class, like those, a lot of that frustration, like pent up over the years and that, that became an outlet. Like, you know, it's like, I want to, I want to make that system better. So I can appreciate that the, the story, and it sounds like it was, it started at an even younger age for you. Like you started seeing that, I mean, moving around to go into different schools. I'm sure like, I'm curious, how many times did you have to repeat a grade or like go, you know, come to a new school and start at a place that you'd already covered? 
constantly, constantly. Yeah. And that's kind of why I was so checked out in classes <laughs> because I already understood pieces of this and it became abundantly clear to me kind of because what you mentioned, I was having to cover gaps information by myself. I knew that I could learn what they were lecturing about over 50 minutes and two to five minutes at home. So yeah. I just kind of completely checked out during the day, felt like I was in a prison. I hated it because I knew not only going too slow for me to be actively engaged with, I could just do it more effectively at home. So yeah. that was kind of, that's what kind of spurred my unconventional approach to learning, which continued well in the college, might I add. Yeah. So, so fast forward, you've, you've dealt with this frustration for, you know, better part of a decade and you start thinking, you know, start seeing some of these, these more tangible problems in the world. At what point did you start looking at this a little bit differently, even before you started Sora, but you started looking at it through the lens of, Hey, there might be a business opportunity to do something different here. Great question. So I'd done the nonprofit thing before. Nonprofits can be good, but I don't know if this is, you know, in the context of what, what your audience enjoys listening to, but looking at colleges and many of the failings of colleges, I realize it's not entirely their fault. <laughs> they're, they're a nonprofit and there are some serious restrictions that happen because you're a nonprofit, which really misaligns incentives between the learners and the administration. Mm -hmm. I won't rail about that too long, but I <laughs> seriously think that's <laughs> it's a different podcast for a different day. Yeah, exactly. So I'd done the nonprofit thing and I'd become really interested into just aligning instead of, you know, it's redesigning the system. So a part of system design is creating feedback loops, creating an alignment of incentives. Oh. Um, you know, like, like Meadows would tell you in her, in her famous, I'm thinking systems book. There are things that you have to do to make a successful system. And I didn't feel like anything outside of the context of a business would uh, satiate those, those requirements. So, sorry, that wasn't really your question, but no, right. so I, started, I started viewing it as a business at the same time I started viewing Sora or what would eventually mm -hmm. become Sora, aka my mission to solve what I was observing as a system or like perhaps even a government instead of a product. So, I could, I could really dive into that if you want, but that's yeah, kind of yeah, how I no, started. I want to, I want to dissect that a little bit because I think what, what's common is once you've opted out of the generic system, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or just somebody frustrated, I think a common things, a common thing to think of is like, this would be a better product. This would be mm -hmm. a better, uh, you know, a better version of this versus thinking of thinking of like, not, not, how do we not only deliver one better outcome, but how do we systematically deliver mm -hmm. better, better outcomes? So dive, exactly. let's dive into that. Where did you take it from? <laughs> hey, I have this kind of system theory about education. Do I have a business mm -hmm. now? Right. So the reason why Sora exists the way it does, and we're seeing a lot of innovation in the unbundling space of education mm -hmm. I know this isn't like specifically education podcast. I won't talk about it too much, but we're seeing a lot of unbundling, especially in the early years. Yeah. So their, their entrance, I think you, you um, spoke to one of the outliers. You said Prenda, they're kind of mm -hmm. one of the outliers, but really the trend is to go towards unbundling. We're seeing yeah. out school primary. Like there are a lot of people focused on the earlier years to, to separate the educational process yeah. and all of its components. High school doesn't work that way. And the reason why, 
nobody really attacks high school. And I don't, if you're a student of, of the industry, you'll see that for every one company addressing high school, there are at least 20 addressing K through eight. So one of the reasons why that happens is because there's a lot of fear in the high mm -hmm. school years for parents. Not only do they feel like they can't answer the students' questions anymore, which drives fear, but there's also this looming decision happening within four years, right? Whether it's what college you're going to or what your first job's going to be. Like they're becoming adults. So that's well, I don't really... want my kid to be a failure. And exactly. Traditional score, scorecard says what school did he, did he or she get into? How much money did he or she make in his first job? You know, like the conversations the average parents at the country club or, you know, the, <laughs> the neighborhood barbecue have are like, what's your kid doing next year? Like that, right. <laughs> that does, I can appreciate that parents have this looming fear because it's such a weird social narrative, the way we keep score, which is kind of, I, anyway, I digress. I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons why the high school space is stagnated in particular. It's almost a, you know, a religion in the U S at least people where you're going to school. Absolutely. I'm sure you see this at Praxis all the time. <laughs> it's, you can't sell when people aren't making rational buying decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. So Sora to change the system, which what we want to do, we wanted to, ultimately create a system that's better than the system and that naturally replaces it. That's the ultimate goal of Sora. But to be able to do that, you can't, you have to be a realist when you recognize these, these different pressures. And that's why high school in Sora's hypothesis is almost rebundling education. Yeah. How can we take all of these innovative things that are happening in the unbundling space? Things like, I don't know, Khan Academy, think like that's a really basic one, but all of these world-class resources that are happening to yeah. support asynchronous or independent learning, how can we rebundle that into a 21st century school or what a school should look like where we're not spending the money on labor for in-person YouTube videos, AKA lectures, which are useless. <laughs> we're spending money to do the high value active learning opportunities that um, lean into the internet age. That's kind of where Sora came from. So you focus exclusively on, on like ninth through 12th, the yep. traditional metric ninth through 12th grade students. Yep. Awesome. Yep. So, so how does it work? Let's dive in. Like how does, <laughs> how does it actually work today? Good question. So I'll say everything about SOAR changed. So we believed we tried to apply the decades of educational research that we'd been reading leading up to SOAR. Mm -hmm. So we had a hypothesis, but we knew that anything that we thought was correct would likely not be entirely correct. So when we started yeah. our first experimental year over, over a year ago at this point, we wanted to be making weekly or biweekly changes to the model, fundamental changes yeah. where this week, and then we measured it. This is one of the benefits of online learning. We would measure it yeah. quantitatively, everything from how many discord messages are sent per hour. So it's like measure engagement or we ha we could read measure it like that, or we could also measure it with our student feedback. Mm -hmm. So we made sure to only accept students who were excited to be guinea pigs. You know, they, they yeah. were excited about our dreams because we really had nothing else to show. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in that experimental year, we were really intentional about making these weekly or biweekly changes to the model, which mm -hmm. we use student feedback, you know, qualitatively. We had what we called roadmap club every week where they would come together and say, this experiment 
I don't like it or this experiment. Great. Let's try it again. Kind of thing with some tweaks. And then we had the quantitative measurements, things like discord messages or these other measures that we could do to track learning. And we built mm-hmm. the whole custom LMS over the last year. So it was particularly easy for us to, to track this data, but that led us to the model that we have today. So we published tons of internal research and where we kind of landed is, as I mentioned, as I alluded to earlier, we don't have lectures. Instead, we spend our money on active learning experiences. So what these active learning experiences actually are, we call them themes. So every two weeks, we work kind of in two week sprints. The students choose a theme in STEM and then a theme in humanities. How that could look is, I think one we just did was learning geometry through Minecraft. So for, for some of the younger students where they mocked up shapes and did volume calculations with water and Minecraft and stuff like that. So that would be an example of a two week sprint. And then we had another one was like the history, life and math of Socrates or something like that. And so that would be an example of a theme. Themes have sessions, which are basically events or classes if you have to go to yeah. the, the traditional paradigm. <laughs> and students are expected to do this independent or asynchronous learning to prepare for these sessions. So yeah. for example, a Socratic discussion about Socrates, that's, that's funny. Um, it would be read these essays, maybe for these skills, you have to do a little bit of independent work, maybe even some practice if it's more based on science or math. Then they come together for these active learning experiences and have really high quality, really fun conversations with either a TA or a faculty member or an expert on our faculty. So after these, we view those as kind of points of inspiration. It's less about the content that they've covered and more about getting jazzed about the subject. That's really what we focus on for those hours that they do in these experiences every week. Um, After that, every two week sprint, they're required to present a project. So usually how this looks, Actually, it's about 50-50. We expected it to be more directly related. But mm-hmm. how this usually looks is the students are diving one step deeper into something they, that particularly struck them during their week of active learning or, yep. or their theme, or they present on something else. So we could, we've had crazy stuff like, oh, I know I haven't had a theme about anything related to this, but I just built a, a storage container house in my backyard. I'd like to tell you about the geometry. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, when you give <laughs> students the areas to do this crazy stuff, they do it, which is really cool. So in super broad strokes, that's how Sora works. We try to blend this asynchronous or individual learning with these active learning experiences. Then it all culminates into these projects where they synthesize a lot of the stuff they've been learning. Yeah. So one, one quick question is just like, uh, how is your student level of satisfaction compared to, you know, your take on the traditional student in traditional <laughs> school? Oh man, it's not even close. It's not even close. So most of the families who choose Sora are looking for an online option. So they started because they were looking for an online school and what they find is so much more, not to toot our own horn too much. But when you look at traditional online schools, if any of your listeners have had experience with them, as I had moving, (laughs) you know, you have to fill in the gaps somehow. So I did online school every once in a while. We saw or what you see is a really isolating experience where it basically boils down to a set of YouTube videos that they say, watch these and then call me when, or email me. They never talk to you. Email me when you're ready for your test and I'll grade it. Like that's the whole experience. It's but the same Sora, thing. Just moved online. Same thing as like exactly. school just moved online. Yeah, exactly. It's a direct port, which is awful. And it's what many families are experiencing right now with the COVID reopenings Yeah, as misguided as that may be. Um, the, online schools that have just decided to go entirely online 
in stage with sense, they are doing a direct port and it's just not working. How Sora, what Sora recognized is an online learning experience has to be fundamentally different. Yeah. You can't do Zoom University. You know, you can't do lectures on yeah. on Zoom. It's a waste of time, one, because as some colleges have found, their professors are just sending YouTube videos You're like, oh, this guy explained it better. They're like yeah. realizing this now. So what do you do with your faculty? That's a natural question that arises. So what Sora did, like I said, we recognize it has to be completely different. We really lean into the social component because when you're doing things online, you can't expect that students in the five minute passing period between classes or, or, you know, tennis, football practice after school, that they're going to get their socialization, which is an absurd notion, by the way, that is a really common misconception in our society, at least that school is for socialization. Look at how school actually works. You sit in rows and if you talk, you get shushed, right? (laughs) Well, it's not social. And the only socialization you're really doing is, is like this horizontal network of people who are the same age as you and your only mm-hmm. relationships with, with people beyond you in years is that of an authority figure. I think that's why that's another gap. You walk out and it's like you're going to apply for your first job. You've never spoken to an adult that wasn't you know, telling you exactly what to do. And, and that makes it difficult to go adjust in the real world as an employee or you know, if you want to go start your own business. So like there are mm-hmm. so many different negative components of the socialization and traditional education, I think. I love that take. I love that take. That's really similar to the findings of the longitudinal studies of Sudbury schools starting in the seventies, which is the larger age range that you have in a learning environment, the less competitive it becomes, which is fascinating because to your point, when you put a bunch of kids who are the same age, they view themselves not only as social competitors, you know, they're trying to date the same people and whatever teenagers (laughs) are worried about, (laughs) but they're trying to apply to the same schools. They're trying to rank themselves higher on their GPA. It's an extremely social or competitive environment. Yeah, I mean. It's Lord of the it, flies. It is. It yeah. is. But when you have younger people and you have this mentor engagement, whether it's between students or individuals that we bring in, it just is a tone shift, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so one of the things that we do to focus on socialization is, which is a dirty word that most people don't like to use, especially in the homeschooling world, by the way, but to, to socialize or to, you know, <laughs> to allow our students to talk to each other, we do a few different things. So one is we put every student in a multi-age house. So houses, our students joke, they're in Hogwarts. It's Harry yeah. Potter. But <laughs> they have stand-ups every morning with these houses. They compete in little academic competitions with them. It's a built-in social and accountability structure. And there's real mentorship that's happening between, you know, 13-year-olds to all the way to 18-year-olds. It's a it's hard to compete with someone when they're half your size, you know, between a 13 and 18 year old. So it really changes the social dynamic. Um, Some other things that we do is we match students up. So when they have questions, for example, they're they're not sure about a concept they learned recently or something, our software is smart enough to go, oh, this student has learned this exact subject to a level two degrees higher than you, since it's a five point scale that we use, two levels higher than you a month ago. Let's match you up and they'll answer your questions. We make it a fundamentally collaborative experience, mm-hmm. which shifts the tone entirely from what a traditional model does. Well, yeah, probably the, there's probably some positive reinforcement too among students where I was the learner and now I'm I'm the guide almost because that that's going to reinforce everything you're learning. So another question I wanted to ask you is, it's not just specific to to Sora, but but re- really anytime you go out in the education space and you, you begin doing alternatives or just, you know, any alternative in a commonly accepted paradigm or industry or whatever is 
as you've as you've encountered parents or students who are uh, they're, they're looking for an alternative what are what are the common arguments or hesitations reservations that you come into with hey I, I like that you're trying something different, but I'm not, you know, how you're do what you're doing is so new. Why would I want to bet my child's future on your new concept or new model? Oh, yes. You how do you happens, deal with those? <laughs> happens all the time. I'm sure it so, does. <laughs> no matter how quote unquote progressive or innovative a parent is, their question is always, the sentiment of the question is always, I don't want to remove options from my student. Yeah. Which is a fantastic goal for parents to have. I think that's probably one of the best guiding motives a parent can have, but that's, that's kind of continuing on why Sora has to be a bundled experience. Why high school is evolving entirely differently than the younger years in terms of innovation, because you need the accreditation piece, which takes a year and a half to get in. We're rounding the corner. We're actually going to have it soon. So we're just like a normal private school, but you need things like the accreditation. You need the social proof of a student got accepted into an elite school that that is your student's dream school kind of thing, you know, because parents don't homeschool or they're afraid to homeschool at this age because, you know, I can't get into this school or I can't, my friends are going to, you know, they're not going to be socialized. There's a lot of fear around it. So when we say you can do all these innovative things the way Sora does it, and you can have the exact same outcomes or better, I, it's looking like it's a lot better even by traditional metrics. Yeah, It's going to be kind of a no brainer. Then they have to compare us apples to apples with the private school around the corner, or even an online school. And then it's not even going to be close. Yeah. But do you all require uniforms or what? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We try to make them get out of their PJs though. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's probably fair enough. So I want to I want to rewind back to to where we were headed down at the beginning of, of our conversation, back to kind of that that founding moment for for Sora, because I went down a rabbit trail. But like when when was the point that you actually made the leap to starting Sora, and what was that decision making process? How did you go about actually? jumping from the world of ideas into the world of application, I'm actually starting a business here. Mm -hmm. So I started working at a place called Contrary Capital, which is this weird little venture capital firm that only hires college students to be their venture partners. It's a weird situation, but through that, I actually met my two co-founders, Indra and Wesley, just by talking together through my frequent rants about education and and it turns out they were thinking about really similar problems. They were thinking about kind of the reskilling economy or how can we, how can we take these automated jobs mm-hmm. and turn it into something that's valued in this, you know, economy 3.0 or whatever, whatever people want to call it. So we were having really similar ideas and we'd been experiencing mentoring and investing in startups. So we asked ourselves, why don't we apply that growth mindset that we've curated by working in the startup space which is really just people with ambitious visions of how to change society. Sometimes yeah. it's small. They want to make a piece of infrastructure 1% faster. Sometimes it's, you know, the scope of Sora, but we thought, why don't we take this mindset and apply it to education? So that, that decision point, which took a few months to get to, because it was a big decision, as you could imagine, yeah. sent us down another rabbit trail using your word where, I didn't really go to class anyway. <laughs> I, I actually never went to class. And it was the same philosophy as in high school. If they want to teach me through lectures, I can lecture myself faster. 
yeah. that was kind of the, the philosophy. And especially going to a STEM university like Georgia Tech, that rarely valued any sort of active learning, which was, looking back on it, absurd. They value administrators. <laughs> That's about it. Um, I just decided I could do everything faster myself and I could do it, you know, on the road. So we even traveled the country talking to school founders, talking to authors, talking to biologists, really anyone who had unique insight and how to holistically develop a kid at this age, because we were looking to, to create a solid hypothesis or starting point for what the school of the future was going to look like. And we just want to become sponges. We just want to talk to as many smart people as we could read as many books as we could. People have been writing about this stuff for people have been writing about this stuff for, you know, centuries. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can find texts millennia, you know? So we wanted to, as I said earlier, become a testing ground, become a sandbox for all these ideas. But the first step was to get these ideas. <laughs> so that was a little different than a traditional technology company might approach the problem where you just want to iterate as quickly as possible. Start with a product that you're embarrassed by, which ended up being the case anyway, <laughs> but we wanted to have a really solid hypothesis for how we were going to start our experimental year. And then fast forward a year, we get incredible advisors through this process just because we've been yelling out into the universe about, <laughs> about education and uh, people like, some really big leaders in the innovative education movement, John Danner, Linda, a lot, a lot of people who were willing to both fund the experiment and give us advice, which was a big, not only nod of approval for the first parents, but yep. a big moment for us where we realized, okay, not only are we correct about no one trying this because they're willing to bet on three excited 20 year olds, but um, we could really make a splash if we're willing to grind it out for minimum wage slash no pay for a year and a half while we get accreditation and, and figure all of it out in a way that most people who didn't have a fire like we had probably wouldn't do. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, the the last part in particular where it's like, we'll do whatever it takes. That's a superpower. I don't think it matters what industry, even if you're, you don't necessarily have to be doing something contrarian and, and like big vision to do that. Like that's a superpower um, just regardless of what direction you're headed. So that's, that's cool. How, how is it going looking back now, you know, on the progress you've made, how is it going just, you know, overall enthusiasm, your, your hypothesis, um, you know, where, where are you in terms of looking back at your hypothesis and overall, like what type of outcomes or progress have students made so far? Mm -hmm. I'm glad we had this spirit of innovation and, or the spirit of constant iteration because, everything that we started with in our hypothesis was wrong to some shade. You know, we probably used the right color on the painting, but the completely wrong shade. Yeah. And so being able to adapt with feedback is the only thing that has turned Sora into the great experience it is now. It was not that great an experience in the beginning, honestly. So that I think that's a huge win for us. And now we're kind of shifting our mindset from how do we continue to, to tweak the, the formula or the model. And now we're entering a mindset of, how do we grow it and help as many people as possible? So we, you know, haven't announced anything yet, but we are bringing on some really incredible, you know, advisors, investors, people who are ready to take store of how, it, how it's grown kind of organically, mostly through word of mouth from our seven to our 50 students in the fall. It's looking like mm-hmm. we're at 50 starting and how can we take it and help a lot, a lot more people. So that's kind of the phase that we're in now. That's awesome. So I want to zoom, zoom back out away from Sora and talk more about the state of the world and kind of your, your bigger 
picture view here about education, the future of education, especially living in the times we do in the wake of like coronavirus, throwing this curveball and maybe accelerating things or, or just fundamentally changing the way um, education is, is facilitated across the board. Where, what's the future look like? What is education, the education of the future look like? Are we there yet? How long until we're there? Like what, what are, you know, what are your thoughts on where we're headed? I'm only going to speak to high school and a little bit about college. Yeah. I have opinions of course about the younger years, but I don't know as much about it. I, yeah. I don't, there are people who, you know, you said you spoke to Prender. Did you speak to Kelly? Is that who? Yeah. Or someone else from Prender? Yeah. So Kelly gave you a lot better, a lot better of an answer for the younger years about this, I'm sure. But at least for high school, they're going to be a lot more options for families. So whether this, you said you spoke to Corey too. So whether that's school choice, whether that's, I can tell you there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes right now for how do we give students options, mm-hmm. whether that's just inspired by COVID it mostly is, <laughs> or whether that's a larger <laughs> macro shift. Um, once they give it to people, they're not going to be able to take it back. Yeah. If that makes sense. So Education is fundamentally changing. Like John said in the recent, John Danner said in the recent essay, he said, as soon as people experience their favorite online school, whether that's, or their favorite new school model, whether that's elementary or high school, they're not going back. They, our students right now are not going back to the public schools they came from, I promise you. It's just so different, might I say better. So the high school space, there's going to be this kind of, not to brag too much, but kind of spurred by Sora. There's a lot of interest right now in how do we take these online models, but then people are realizing, oh shoot, all the stuff that we require schools to do is extremely archaic, which Sora has had to negotiate. (laughs) Things like accreditation, things like these weird labor laws and this absurd stuff. But now people are having to realize that school models are changing and we need to make laws more friendly for it because we've been arguing with even lawmakers for over a year now. So I feel like we're kind of paving the way for a lot of exciting stuff that's going to happen both through us and through other people and colleges are going to increasingly become less relevant. We're already seeing this happen, right? And this is music to practice's ears, right? (laughs) We're seeing there, the signal of college is kind of, it's not irrelevant yet, but look at me. I still don't have a college degree. (laughs) That might change soon, but it doesn't matter, right? Just chase, chase a vision and be really informed about it. And as long as you're more informed than the person you're talking to, they're not going to go, but wait, show me that piece of paper. People are realizing that, especially in hard industries like software, like technical skills, the tides are, the tides are changing. I guess I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, I think I make a good point there too. And it's, it's, I think part of the, the accelerant there. Yes. You know, coronavirus is going to change like the pandemic. If schools don't reopen or everybody's going online, there's all these kind of like bigger things that are, that are maybe accelerants, but the the bigger picture thing here is I think the younger, the younger a student can be inspired to go chase the thing that they're most interested in without, without this mindset of I need permission or I need an institution to support my, my journey of studying this thing. Like, the more um, the more experience young people, young adults can 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 gain in 
learning how to create value in the real world on their own before they have to make that decision. Do I go to college or not? Or what do I do for a job? Or how do I build a career? Anything like that? Like, I think those things are going to drive major changes in, I mean, across everything. We're talking like if, if, if young adults are becoming adults at age 15 now because they've had a better education process, they've been exposed to a wider range of, of ages and demographics and things by that age. Like in many ways, I think that there's, there's only positive impacts that can have. So. I completely agree. I completely agree. And that kind of reminded me of how we view education happening at Sora. It's almost like throwing as many difficult problems with ill-defined parameters in front of kids as possible because that's how life works, right? And that's how maturity happens. So for the student who's interested in becoming an architect, like, hey, why don't you build a, a container house, you know, in your backyard? Or the student who's yeah. like, I've, rocketry might be fun. We're like, okay, meet with the SpaceX engineer on our mention network and launch a rocket. It's just, especially for the older years, it, I don't know if this podcast is called Self-Directed, so it reminds me of a book I read called, it's like The Self-Directed Child or something by Stixrud. I think that was his last name. It's a long time ago, but he really codified the, the notion of, you know, a more fati or like whatever the Stoics say, or like Nietzsche would say about just attacking as many difficult problems as you can. And that's the best education. That is how you create a self-directed person. That's how you create someone who's ready to attack the problems of the real world. That's how you create in your words an adult at the age of 15. You don't want to handhold them. You don't want to create as many simple problems as you can. You want to give them wicked problems. Yeah, absolutely. Like even if you don't have a ton of experience or ton of technical know-how at, at a younger age, if you have the confidence that comes from from facing those difficult problems over and over and over again and succeeding or making progress, like that will carry you forward. And it'll give you kind of this this belief set that says, I, I'm, I'm capable enough of figuring it out, whatever curveball comes my way. So anyway, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing uh, more about like what you're doing at Sora, kind of the why behind it and kind of in closing, like where can people learn more about Sora, whether they're parents or teachers or, or students, where do you send them? Where can they find out more? Yep. Learn more at soraschools.com. And I'm sure Mitchell will put that in some sort of description or something. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, Garrett. It's been a pleasure catching up. For sure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you.